Okay, good morning, everybody. Glad you have joined us today. If maybe you are just tuning in to the live stream, we are glad, glad, glad to have you. And I just want to point something out. Yes, glad, glad, glad. That's right. That's almost like my version of an exclamation point, which I generally don't use. Um, I want to point something out. Several months ago, I wore this same shirt. And I apparently, I don't think much about what I wear on Sundays. I just want something, I've said this before, I just want something that doesn't make me look chubby. And um, huh. I just feel like this is one of those shirts. I don't know. But, um, but apparently there's a lot of talk about what I wear, which I'm not going to worry about too much, except that I wore this shirt in July and everybody said I looked like I was wearing my winter clothes in July. But with the weather like it's been the last day or two, I'm busting out the shirt. All right. And I want you to know that whatever comments you have or encouragements for me or criticisms even, I welcome them even if they're about my clothing, which I don't care that much about because I love to grow and get better. And uh, we were actually, we, we had a um, group this week. I actually had several groups this week. And in one of our groups, I'm not going to out the person because she would be mortified if I said who it was. But when uh, her husband said that when they're home watching the message, she'll be like, I could, like get to a point and I'll be belaboring the point and she'll be like, okay, John, come on. <laughs> and he's like, well, she would never put that in the comments. And I just want you to know, you can put that kind of stuff in the comments. I'm fine with it. Like, maybe don't make fun of me, but like, be like, we got it. Or like, affirm a point that you have, because I love critique. I love critique that is designed to be helpful and make, make me better, because I always want to get better and better and better at the things that I do for the Lord. So uh, I love that critique. In fact, I used to be a part of a um, a church where we had multiple people who were preaching every single weekend, and we would all get together on Friday, and we would put all the names of everyone that was preaching into a hat, and we would pull out three names, and those three people had to preach in front of all of the other pastors, and I loved that. I was, I was always on Friday, I was like, come, pull my name, pull my name, pull my name, because I know that if I get up there and preach in front of this group of people, they're going to give me tons of helpful advice. They love me. They care about me. They're in my corner. They're my team. And so even the hard things that they're going to say to me are going to help me move and grow and I think that it's through challenge and correction that we grow the most. And so even when I was getting critiques from people, they'd be like, hey, I really loved this point. You did this really well. And in my head, I was like, yeah, 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 good, good. Get to the bad stuff. Get to the bad stuff. Get to the things that I did wrong. Because if I get the things that I did wrong, then boy, we could really grow out of this. Now, I did find that other people in that environment didn't necessarily cherish the bad stuff. <laughs> All right. They didn't love to get that correction. But I, I feel like that's where we grow the most. And what I, what's interesting is, is we're in this series seven, we're looking at the messages that Jesus sent to seven churches at the beginning of Revelation. And he's about to, now this is all in chapters two and three in Revelation, and the rest of it is the prophecy of what's to come. But in chapters two and three, he's trying to explain Jesus, it's dictating this to the, the apostle John, and John is sending it out to the churches. He's trying to get them to understand how they wait well, how they prepare for what is coming later. And for most of the churches, he has both good things to say to them, encouragements, and challenges to say, I have this against you. However, and, and I always love that, but however, there are times when somebody is up against such a big challenge they have so much flying in their face that they don't even need that stuff that's against them. What they need is encouragement in what they're doing well. 
a push forward to continue in the things that they are doing. And that is the case with the church that we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about what Jesus has to say to the church in a town called Smyrna. Smyrna. Yes, like Smyrna, Georgia. Spelled the same way. In fact, it's named after this city. All right, so what I want to do is we're actually going to read the letter or the message that's given to this church, and then we'll kind of take it apart and talk about all what it means. We'll talk about the history of the town so we can better understand what's going on, and we'll learn together from what Jesus has to say to this church. It's in Revelation chapter 2, verses, uh, we're going to start in 8. It goes through 11. Verse 8. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna, write, and remember the, the symbolism of this, the angel is not an angel like we would think of an angel. It's an angel as the messenger of the church, which is the leader of the church or the pastor of the church or the elder or the bishop or whatever the, the title was they had for them. The angel of the church of Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you're rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. First thing I want to point out before we talk about this town of Smyrna, Jesus has no challenge for them. He has nothing against them. He wants them to continue in what they're doing so they're getting something right, and we're going to talk about what that is today. But let me tell you a little bit about Smyrna, because as we are reading these letters, we want to be able to hear what Jesus has to say to them as much as possible in the way they would have heard it. So that's what we need first. We understand what he is saying to them. Then we can understand what it means for us. And so to do that, we're talking about some of the history with regards to these cities. So we know what's going on in the city. Why might he be saying what he's saying to them? Now, Smyrna is a port city, much like Ephesus, which we talked about last week. That means there's a lot of trade. There's a lot of money coming in and out. It means there's a lot of ideas coming in and out as well. Smyrna is under the control of the Roman Empire. Again, just like Ephesus, which we talked about last week. They're under the control of the Roman Empire, and it is a center of the worship of Greek and Roman gods and goddesses. It's all over the place. In fact, Smyrna was a host to several temples to Greek and Roman gods and goddesses. It was actually, if you, if you were to look at a map geographically, Smyrna is the next cove north of Ephesus. So you have Ephesus, which is kind of a cove, and then there's an, an inlet, and there would trade would go through there. And then just north of that, there's like a peninsula, and then just north of that is Smyrna and its cove. And Smyrna and Ephesus were competing with each other for business. And early on, Ephesus was winning. At the time that, the, uh, that this was written, Ephesus was a town of about 250,000 people, so a quarter million people. I think last week we said that would be a population someplace between Charleston 
and Tampa. So if you'd split the difference between those two places, about twice the size of Charleston was Ephesus. Whereas Smyrna was about 100,000 people, so slightly smaller than Charleston would be. I'm just trying to give a frame of reference here. So Ephesus was out ahead. They were making more money at this time. But unfortunately for Ephesus, their uh, inlet, I don't know the exact term, but their bay, their port silted up where, where ships couldn't come in. Silt filled the bay. And, and Ephesus basically faded into complete obscurity. Today, now the closest town to Ephesus is called, let me get the name right, is called Selsuk. Selsuk, and it's about 35,000 people. So it just shrunk right down. Whereas the port in Smyrna remained active for many, many years, and Smyrna is now the modern city of Izmir, Turkey, which is four to four and a half million people. <laughs> okay, so it is, it is twice the size of metropolitan Charlotte today, what, and it was Smyrna. Um, so there's a lot of trade coming in and out. There's a lot of money coming in and out. Not quite at the level of Ephesus yet, but it will more so as time goes on. And Smyrna, uh, the Greek translation of the name Smyrna means the city of myrrh. Myrrh. It's a, it's a fragrance. It's, a, uh, it's actually a sap from a tree that hardens. And to get the myrrh, they would, uh, there's a, what do they call it? A, a myrrh tree. <laughs> and uh, there's, a, there's a scientific name. I can't pronounce it. I'm not a scientific scientist. And so what they would do is they would take the, the myrrh tree and they basically wound it. They, they hit it with a, an implement. It wounds the tree and then this sap leaks out or bleeds out and then it hardens and you harvest that off of the tree and it's a fragrance. It's uh, used in the embalming process. And myrrh actually plays a very important role in scripture. We see myrrh at the birth of Jesus. It's one of the gifts that is brought to him by the wise men from the East. Potentially, I mean, obviously we don't know, but it could have come from Smyrna. We don't know. But the myrrh is at, myrrh is at the birth of Jesus. Myrrh is at the death of Jesus because myrrh is what gets mixed with the wine to create the bitter, sour wine that's offered to him on the cross. So it's wine and myrrh that's offered to him on the cross. And then myrrh is also at Jesus' resurrection because myrrh was used, and it says this in scripture, myrrh was specifically used as one of the spices and embalming elements in putting Jesus in the tomb. And so myrrh is right there with Jesus all the way through, and Smyrna is the city of myrrh. Now, it is written, let's, uh, in verse 8, it says, And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. I, one thing I find interesting, and you're going to notice this as we go through Revelation, Jesus almost never refers to himself as Jesus. There are only two times in the entire Bible where Jesus uses that name for himself. One is when he meets Paul on the road to Damascus, and, or Saul on the road to Damascus, and he, Saul is converted because Saul sees this blinding light and says, you know, who is this? And Jesus says, it is I, Jesus, whom you persecute. First time Jesus uses his name. He never uses his name in the Gospels anywhere, not one time, for himself. And then the only other place is at the very, very end of Revelation when Jesus uses his own name in chapter 21 or 22. 
Other than that, Jesus always uses a descriptive term to talk about himself, and as he introduces himself to each of these churches, he uses a descriptive term. To the Smyrnans, he says, I am the first and the last who was dead and came to life. But this is Jesus. And he's writing to the angel of the church of Smyrna, the messenger of the, the church of Smyrna. Who was that messenger? Last week, you remember, we talked about the fact that in Ephesus, that would have been Timothy, who was really well known in scripture. In Smyrna, the bishop of Smyrna, that was his title, the bishop of Smyrna, when this letter was written in 96 or 97 AD, was a guy named Bucolos. Bucalus. He's got a it's a funny name. Catchy. It sounds a little like caboose, but <laughs> Bucalus or Bucalos. And uh, he was he was he was well on in years when this letter got there. In fact, he dies in about 100 AD, so only a few years after this letter gets there. And we don't know a lot about him other than he died at sort of a ripe old age. He was known for being kind and gentle and humble, very soft-spoken and loving. Maybe that has something to do with why this church was doing as well as they were doing. They had a very kind and gracious leader, and that's very important. So he's older in life when this letter comes around to their church to encourage them. And this is what Jesus says. And by the way, we don't know much more about Bucolos except for, I'm going to butcher his name just so you know, Bucolos. Um, other than the fact we do know that he was a direct disciple of John. So John, who's writing this, potentially even led him to Christ from some of the things that, that are written about him, and he studied directly under John. So when John writes this letter, he's writing to someone he knows really, really well and trained and loved. All right, this is what uh, Jesus has to say to this church. He says, I know your works, tribulation and poverty. Pay attention to those three things. We'll talk about each of them. Works, tribulation, and poverty, but you're rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So first, let's talk about those three things. Works, tribulation, and poverty. Their works are what they're doing. In fact, if you think about Ephesus last week, Jesus said, you're you've lost your works. You've gone away from the things. You need to go back, and these are the term he uses, you need to go back and do your the first works. You need to return to living the way that you were when you first started, when you were passionate and loving and caring, and you're not doing that. He looks at the church at Smyrna, and he says, I know your works, and he commends them for them. So they are passionate, and they are loving, and they are caring, and a lot of that probably has to do with their leader, who seems to be those same things. He says, I know, I see, okay, you're not on your own. They're under, they're under a lot of stress right now. He says, I see your tribulation. That's the second thing. They're under a lot of persecution and a lot of stress. What exactly that looks like, we don't know, but we know that the Roman emperor at this time is a guy named Domitian, and Domitian was committed to the, to the, um, uh, the cult of the empire, which was the deification of the, the leaders of the, uh, the empire and the leaders of it. And so, and he really believed in the, the Greek and Roman gods and goddesses. And so uh, there was a lot of persecution coming at the church at this time, obviously really heavy here. And Jesus says, I see it. I see that you're continuing in those works and I see your tribulation. And the word tribulation means to be pressed 
or compressed. So that gives sort of a visual reference. He says, I, I see how you're stressed and how everything's pressing in on you. I see your works. I see your, I see your tribulation. And the third thing, he says, I see your poverty. I see your poverty. And this is physical poverty. This is, they are, they are poor. They don't have money and they're surrounded by wealth in this, in this town and they don't have it. Now he does encourage them and he says, but you're rich. Okay. You are, you are financially poor, but you are spiritually rich and they need to hold on to what is true and what is right. In the translation, if you just want to translate this phrase into common, you know, today language, you might say, I see what you're doing. I see what they're doing to you, and I see what it's cost you. I see what you're doing, I see what they're doing to you, and I see what it's cost you. And it cost you a lot. It cost them a lot. I mean, just that physical wealth. We talk, we've talked about this in the series, for those of you that maybe that are just joining us now. This was a culture where even your whole career would be centered around uh, worship of gods and goddesses. That that uh, it's let's say if you were a, a silversmith, okay, and that was your family, and that was your all your family were silversmiths. That was your deal, and the silversmith uh, guild or trade would have a a patron god or goddesses. They would have someone that they worship, and they would all gather together, and they would have these big feasts where they would worship this this god or this goddess, and they would eat the food that they would sacrifice to this god or goddess, and so when someone became a Christian, they would no longer want to go to these feasts and worship this false god, this pagan god. And so if you weren't going to these feasts and you weren't participating in all the activities and you weren't in the social circle or the, in the, the, the career circle, then when you made the decision to become a Christian, it wasn't just about a change of faith. It was an entire change of life and lifestyle. You would often lose your job and your source of income. You would lose all of your security for the future. You would lose, in many cases, your family. They would disown you because you're no longer a part of what they believe. And so it would cost you almost everything. And so this church had to learn how to rely on each other because they had absolutely no other support coming in. So it cost them a ton. And Jesus said, I see that. I see the sacrifices you're making. I see what you're doing for each other and for me. And I see how I've how everybody is, is coming in from the outside. I see and I understand. And he wanted to encourage them. I know you're scared. I know you've lost a lot, but you haven't actually lost anything because you are spiritually rich. And so he's trying to encourage them in that. And I got to tell you, that's a little bit difficult for us to wrap our minds around because we don't live in a culture like that. So if in our culture we make the decision to believe in Jesus for salvation, which means to trust him for what he did on the cross, believe that he died for our sins, paid for our sins, and asked forgiveness of our sins. If we do that, it might cost us something. It's not likely going to cost us our job. It's not likely going to cost us our family, although there are situations where a family could disown someone over that kind of decision, depending on what is going on. We don't face those same kinds of persecutions. Likely nobody's going to try to kill us. Nobody's going to take away all our property or our land. We're not going to have the government coming down and trying to actively persecute us or kill us. So it's hard for us to wrap our head around. But that doesn't mean that doesn't happen in the world today. In fact, today in Izmir, Turkey, okay, Turkey is the least Christian nation on the planet. 
which is interesting. All of these letters are written to that area and they did a fantastic job of getting the gospel out to the world. And then not such a fantastic job of keeping the gospel in their world. And so it's the least Christian nation on the planet. And in Turkey today, if you decide to follow Jesus Christ, it could cost you everything and it could cost you your life. And so Christians today are facing the same kind of persecution that Christians were facing then. It's a little hard for us to wrap our head around because we live in America and so things are different for us here. But it's very real. It's hard for us to know in the same way that Jesus knew. Because not only did Jesus live in that, well, not in Turkey, but in that area, but Jesus faced all the same things they did. Jesus had kind, good, caring, humble, gracious works in the midst of a lot of pressure and persecution. And Jesus was poor. <laughs> he didn't have money. He, he said, I don't even have a place to lay my head down. Now, they had a little bit of money to make ends meet because Judas was the keeper of the money bag, and that didn't turn out well. But he wasn't rich by any stretch of the imagination, but Jesus understood what true riches look like. It's not worldly wealth. It's not acceptance by the culture around us. It is faithfulness to God, and Jesus sees that and relates to that in the church at Smyrna. He had experienced all of that stuff. And he said, I see the Jews, I see the Jews that say that they're Jews, but they're really not. They're a synagogue of Satan, which is a very harsh and direct term. But what he's getting at is, and it's the same thing he was facing. There are people who claim to be the children of God, but they don't act like it. They claim to be Jews and follow all the rules and all the ordinances, but they're actively working against Jesus, actively working against Christ and he knows the pressure is coming from all different angles. It's coming from the Romans. It's coming from Domitian. It's coming from their culture around them. It's coming from the Jews that say they love God but are persecuting them. It's coming from everywhere. He sees it and he knows it. They have religious people even fighting against them. And Jesus gets that. And so this is what he has to say to them to encourage them. He says, I see all of that. And then verse 10, do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. It's like, is that encouraging? I don't know. Is that 10? And 10 days, by the way, is figurative. That doesn't mean literal 10 days. It's figurative. It, it symbolizes a, a period of time. And, and, and Smyrna is about to experience a much higher level of systemic persecution than they even did up until that point. It's only going to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. Jesus knows that, and he wants them to stay strong. And so he says, do not fear, which is next to loving God and loving others, I think the second most, or the maybe it would be the third most important or pervasive command in the entire Bible, do not fear fear, which is easier said than done when someone is throwing you into prison <laughs> or you're afraid that they're going to kill you or that you're going to lose your job or that you're going to lose your family. But he says, do not fear. And even though the fears that we might have today are different than the fears that they had then, we need that just as much as they do. We do not need to fear. There's nothing for us to be afraid of. 
And you know, it's interesting. There's, there's a lot of talk about a lot of things right now. And there's one consistent thing that I see in Christians that I see talking in the media or social media or wherever it may be. And it's fear. And I get it in a sense. But this is a time for us where we as Christians need to take what Jesus says seriously. Do not be afraid. Christians seem so scared to me. And that, that fear drives Christians into anger. It drives them into defensiveness. It drives them into irrationality or, or unbiblical behavior in some cases. It drives Christians into not acting like Christ. I don't know what Christians are so afraid of, quite frankly. I mean, maybe it's changing political or social landscapes that we don't understand or, or whatever. Maybe it's belief that we're losing our rights here or there. Maybe it's, the, maybe it's the realization that we aren't the default in America anymore, and that scares us, and we're afraid of what that means for us or for, for the next generations. All I can say is that Christians seem really scared. And when you're scared, you've got basically three options. Fight, flight, or faith. And the outcome of those three decisions are drastically different. When our response, when we have a fight reaction to fear, it creates aggression, it creates shouting and yelling, and it creates confrontation. When we have a flight reaction to fear, it creates timidity, it creates silence, and it creates isolation. And neither one of those things are healthy. But a faith response to fear creates confidence, boldness, and freedom. Fear will control you, but faith will free you. And you can see it all over a Christian. You can see the difference. You can sense it in them. You can sense which, which Christians are insecure and which ones are confident. You can tell which ones are timid and which ones are bold. You can tell which ones are gracious and which ones are judgmental. You can just sense it and feel it. But fear drives us into all those unhealthy things. And listen, no matter what's happening around us, what country we live in or culture we live in, no matter what's happening politically or socially or anything, listen, you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear. Why do we have nothing to fear? We have nothing to fear because Jesus wins. It's, it's the whole message of the book of Revelation. Jesus wins. Now, this church had, had tremendous difficulty that was coming. I'll tell you about another person in the church in Smyrna who was not the bishop of Smyrna when the letter was written, but shortly thereafter. See, Bucolos, <laughs> Bucolos dies just three years after, maybe four years after this letter arrives in his old age. And he hands the church off to someone named Polycarp. Polycarp. Yes, like the fish. Polycarp. Polycarp ends up being the bishop of Smyrna for 50 years after that, until roughly 155 AD. This is what uh, St. Arrhenius said about Polycarp. 
I'm just going to quote him here. He said, I could tell you the place where the blessed Polycarp sat to preach the word of God. It is yet present in my mind with what gravity he went everywhere, came in and went out. What was the sanctity of his deportment, the majesty of his countenance, and what were his holy exhortations to the people? I seem to hear him now relate how he conversed with John and many others who had seen Jesus Christ, the words he had heard from their mouths. See, Polycarp was also, he was a native of Smyrna. Polycarp was trained by John directly. Polycarp was likely led to Christ by John directly. And he gave his life after Bukalos, have you say that, passed away. (laughs) Polycarp led the church faithfully. And many of the same things that were said about his predecessor were said about him. And he was faithful. Now, he took the reins of this church with this letter in hand. Facing the increasing persecution, and I promise you, it increased heavily over the beginning of like 100 up to 200. It just continued to increase. And he faced the heat of that, but he did it in a way that was faithful to the letter that Jesus sent to them. He remained strong. He was ultimately, at one point, he was sent to Rome. And on February 23rd, it was a Saturday, February 23rd, 155 AD, he was commanded to offer incense to the Roman emperor, and he refused to do it. And because he refused to offer incense to the Roman emperor, he was burned at the stake. But before he was burned or as he was being placed on the stake, This is what history records him saying. Polycarp says, Eighty and six years I have served him. He was 86 years old when when this happened. Eighty and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season, and after a little while is quenched but you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. And he told God, he thanked God that he was counted worthy of giving his life in this way. And Polycarp was burned at the stake, except the flames didn't kill him. There are some people that say the flames didn't even touch him. And so instead of burning alive, they had to stab him with a spear in order to kill him. But he gave his life which makes what Jesus says at the the end of this letter even more pertinent. Because he says, he said that you're going to have tribulation, you're going to be thrown into prison, you're going to be tested. But then Jesus told them, be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Some people call this the martyr's crown. It's a reward from Jesus. Now, I personally don't believe it's reserved only for martyrs, but those who are faithful until death, whether that death comes as a martyr like it did for Polycarp or whether it comes at a ripe old age like it did for Bucolos. Nevertheless, there is reward for those that are faithful, even in the face of persecution and pressure and compression. And he looks at this church who's facing all of that, and he says, keep it up. And don't be afraid. You have nothing to fear. Because the message of Revelation, it's some people call it a book about end times. It's not about end times. 
I would say transition times, <laughs> victory times. It's about the story of of victory over sin and death, victory over Satan, God proving his power, Jesus proving his kingship, that in the end, Jesus returns to earth to rule and to reign here. And those who've been faithful will be rewarded in that kingdom. And so Jesus is looking at this church and he's saying, stay strong, keep going. I get it. You're rich. Don't worry. You're rich. There are some sacrifices that will never be repaid until the kingdom comes. And he needed them to hang on to that. And so whatever it is you're facing, maybe you feel like you're facing persecution for your faith. Maybe you're, maybe you're concerned about accepting Jesus as Savior because you're worried about what that might Well, I would say to you the same thing Jesus said to this church. Do not fear. Do not fear. Whatever you're afraid of, whatever is keeping you from Jesus, don't let it stop you. It's a deception to try and get you to take your eyes off of what you know is true and believe all the lies that are around you. That success comes from worldly wealth. That significance comes from being known by people. True value and worth comes from knowing you're a child of God. True hope doesn't come from the schedule that's out in front of us or the opportunities that lay in front of us on earth. True hope comes from knowing that Jesus Christ, the King of the universe, who has conquered sin and death, who rose from the grave, is returning to establish his kingdom. And those who are faithful will be rewarded in that kingdom, that we get to be there with him. That's real hope. Not in this world, but beyond this world in what Jesus has to offer. So don't let whatever it is you're afraid of stop you from accepting Jesus. All you have to do is believe that he died for your sins on the cross and accept salvation, knowing that he rose again on the third day. That's it. Believe it. There's nothing that's stopping you from doing that. And those of you, those of us who have believed that, have decided that, we can easily still become afraid and we don't have to fear. We don't have to fear because Jesus wins. So do not be afraid. Trust Jesus. Trust that he has the victory. Trust that he's returning. Trust that if you're faithful to him, you will be rewarded for that. And we can face everything that comes at us in life without worrying about what it costs us. The same way he encouraged this church to face everything that came their way without worrying about what it cost them because they were spiritually rich. They had to trust him. He says, he who has an ear, this is verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Who is he who overcomes? It's everyone who has trusted in Christ will not be hurt by the second death. We'd have nothing to fear because we know we will be with him and he has the victory. And so I don't know what you may be facing today or what fears you may have, what your faith may be costing you, but I know we can hear the same thing that Jesus says to the church in Smyrna today. 
Do not be afraid, but trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and thank you for your encouragement to this church. The words of Jesus spread throughout the region and ultimately to us. Thank you for giving us insight and helping us understand what's going on with these churches so we can know what you're saying to them, Jesus. And understanding ourselves and what's happening now and, and how we can take the lessons that they learned, the good and the bad, and apply it to ourselves. We're learning, we're growing, and we want to wait for you really well, Jesus. God, if there's anybody who's thinking about accepting Jesus as their Savior, that there are roadblocks that they've put around them, that their enemy has put around them to stop them from believing and saying, yes, that is true, I believe it, and I need it. I pray, God, you would help to give them clarity through your Spirit, that you would, you would open up their mind and their heart to see what is true and to not allow any fear or reservation to stop them from doing what they know they need to do, putting their faith and trust in you, Jesus, asking forgiveness and coming into your family. And God, for all of us that are a part of your family, we just want to express our trust in you to say we will not be afraid, but we will have confidence in your name and hope in Jesus and I ask God that as we say that and as we believe that, that your spirit would give us that confidence and boldness, would help us to see the world the way that we're supposed to see the world and trust you the way that we're supposed to trust you, that you would give us confidence and security and hope in your name. It's in your name we pray, amen.